We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Author's Corner segment, and I am just excited to welcome this guest to the program. When you talk about Donald Trump and, you know, what's going on with him and all the different things, you you kind of want to know, has he done a great job as a politician? Yet you hear the tweets, you hear the different things, you hear the mainstream media. So my guest, author Victor Davis Hansen, has a really interesting case for Trump. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Victor Davis Hansen, author of The Case for Trump. Victor, thanks for calling. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. We're excited to have you on the show, and uh, and thanks again for staying up with me. Now, kind of delving into specifically enough, uh, my concern, and I'm just going to go throw this out. I have not the political knowledge that you have. I'm just an opinionated guy that definitely really focuses on our education system and different things. But when it comes to politics, I'm concerned historically if – Donald Trump, President Trump, continues to burn bridges with other people that it's going to cause the Republicans to lose the House and Senate at one point in time and the presidency and everything good that he's done will just be erased. Almost like what President Barack Obama did and was erased. Am I on the wrong concern? Is there going to be other people to lead by his example? Well, I think Every president, you, you express concerns that everybody has when a president's up for re-election. That you don't want his record to be erased because he did something gratuitous or that was not necessary. So everybody's worried about Trump speaking or tweeting in a manner that turns off that key independent swing voter. He can't win with only his base, and he can't win without his base. So, but he's got to go beyond the forty percent, and he did it last time by getting another six to eight percent of independent swing voters. So that's what he has to appeal to. But he doesn't exist in a vacuum. And in 2016, the message was, for you swing voters, I'm not Hillary Clinton. And for whatever my sins are, they were in the private sphere. They were not in public life. And the message in 2020 is going to be the same thing, but maybe a little bit more persuasive. Whatever you think I am, I'm the only thing between you and what is turning out to be socialism. Yes. I mean, this isn't this isn't just 70 percent tax rate on the top incomes or wealth tax or abolishing student debt or Medicare for everybody. This is malice. I mean, this is abortion is permissible infanticide. It's tearing down the border wall, according to Beto. It's 16-year-olds can vote in California. Uh, it's let's abolish ICE. Let's uh, abolish the internal combustion engines. Let's abolish jet planes. We've never seen something like this. I mean, this was Woodstock Nation talk in the 1960s, but this is serious stuff. And that has no, every issue that I just mentioned doesn't have a 51% constituency. So are they really going to run on that against Trump and go the full McGovern in 72? I don't think they are. See, and what I'm saying to you is my concern is that there is enough. If somehow they push the needle, somehow they get through and they win. uh, My concern is that then you talked about all those things, they will happen. Because you open the borders, you're going to give... 
illegals the ability to vote. You're going to do all these different things just so that the Democrats will have more votes, and it'll be very tough for the Republicans to come out of this. Yeah, well, I mean, usually when I'm a historian, so when I wrote the book, I tried to be dispassionate, neither Trump's a savior or a sinner. So when I look at that question, I ask myself, what does history suggest? So Donald Trump right now is starting his third year of governance. He's right polling about 42 to 45. It's about where Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were. Next, next, he lost 40 seats in the House. Clinton lost 53. Obama lost 62. He gained two seats in the Senate. Clinton lost eight. Obama lost six. Clinton destroyed Bob Dole in 1996 in that re-election effort. Mm -hmm. And Barack Obama pretty much dismantled Mitt Romney in 2012. Right. So history suggests that Trump's polls and his midterm performance are about what an incumbent does when he gets reelected. That's number one. Number two is what stops incumbents like George H.W. Bush, to take one example, or Jimmy Carter, from not getting reelected historically, or Richard Nixon from not finishing his term. There's three things. A big scandal like Watergate. Right. I don't think the Mueller investigation is going to find collusions. Number two, a very unpopular and optional war, something like LBJ's Vietnam War that destroyed his presidency or the Iraq War that made Bush, you know, very ended up very emasculated in the second term. And then third, an economic meltdown. And I don't see those things happening. They could. But for now, and then finally, does the president improve or does he become more enfeebled as he goes on? And the question we have to ask about Trump is this year, the last month, two months, are his cabinet secretaries more stable or less stable? In other words, is he getting along better with Bolton and Pompeo than he did with Tillerson and McMaster? Or is there an Omarosa there? Is there a Scaramucci there? Is there a Bannon there? Is Trump not speaking as well, or is he speaking better? Is it Are his rallies the same, better, worse? I don't see a deterioration. I think that in some ways he's developing sort of a sense of humor, self-deprecation. And then finally, and as I mentioned earlier, what's the type of opposition? Is the opposition clever and going to the center where elections are ended? Or do they go the full Barry Goldwater 1964 or the full McGovern 1972? And I think it's much more likely than ever before that the Democrats are going to go down that path. And and that's where I think so, too. But here is it's kind of almost like a mirror image of what happened in the Republican primaries when uh, President Trump was running. You have every person in the world putting their... I yeah. guess they're their hat into the ring saying we're going to be part of this and it's going to just really rip apart every one of the candidates unless there's a pre- go ahead. Yeah, well, I think what's going to happen is that they're in a classical paradox because uh, they know in the abstract the way to win would be to nominate somebody like Joe Biden. And right, then get right. Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren as his running mate. 
but their own orthodoxy prevents them from doing that. They're now the identity politics party. They're not going to run an old white guy, even even if he's Bernie Sanders or, or Joe Biden. They're not going to do it. They say that they could, but the logical extension of their philosophy is they can't do it, and they'll have a they'll have a progressive walkout if they try. So that means that they're going to have either a woman or an identity politics candidate. And from what we've seen, they're not very persuasive candidates no. personally, and their their agendas are polarizing. So what they're going to have to do is, if they're going to win, then Joe, a guy like Joe Biden will be 78 years old. He's not very disciplined. He'll no. have to be better better than he has been in the past. When he's he's got to remember he's failed twice. Once right, he right, right. With, with, he was caught plagiarizing, and once he said some ridiculous things about Barack Obama that he's the first clean black and he is the first articulate, and he imploded. So you're going to have to have a better Joe Biden at 78 than he was in his 50s or 60s, and then you're going to have to have him somehow, some gymnastics to get away from this this what's going to likely be the democratic platform in Milwaukee. It's going to be pretty wild. And somehow Biden's not going to be able, he's going to have to say, I'm not going to run on infanticide. I'm not going to be running on tearing down the wall. I'm not going to be running on a wealth tax. I'm not going to be running a green deal. I'm not going to be running on giving the vote to 16 year olds. And he may be able to say that, but a lot of people who are going to run commercials will say, this is what your party was. This is what you said in a primary debate. So I think it's going to be 53, 47 odds right now, 55, 45 for Trump. And I don't say it as a Trump partisan. I'm just looking at it analytically as a story. Right. And I'm looking at this, too. And what if they would all unify the party with one candidate? I think that the Republicans lucked out with a powerful person like President Trump coming out of that craziness. I'm thinking the attacks that are going to happen when you're going to see Clinton, if Clinton runs and then you have Biden and you have you have Bernie Sanders and you have Elizabeth Warren and you have this person and that person that they're just going to attack each other to the point that Trump will be able to pick them apart. In a, in whoever wins, that that's. I think so. I think if they were smart, they would. I mean, there's so many things that can happen. If, if for example, if Michelle Obama were were to run, I wouldn't think she'd be effective a candidate. But I'm not a Democratic voter, so I think that she may she could be quite an effective candidate, at least from the Democratic point of view. And she's experienced now. She's not as reckless as she was in 2008. She's got Barack Obama. It would sort of be a Hillary Clinton wink and nod. If you vote for me, you get my ex-president husband as well. And so that may happen. So there's a lot of wild cards that can happen. I'm just saying that for right now, I, I assume that Trump has an advantage as an incumbent. He has a pretty good record to run on. Okay, so let's just talk about, let's just say President Trump does win. And what I think if we're looking at a, you know, forecast right now, that's probably what's going to happen. After he finishes up his second term, can't, are you concerned that there's going to be just a backlash in this country because just of the person Trump, not the del- not the person who was the lawmaker that's made changes. And that's where I want to get your take is specifically without giving away the book that ultimately you see a lot of the good things that President Trump has ha- been able to do in the last first couple years as president, but not as a politician, not as somebody that's able to, you know, bring sides together and unify it 
unify a country. What happens if that backlash comes when there's no one else as, you know, as savvy as President Trump moving forward in history after that fact with the Republican Party? Well, I think that always happens uh, with any party. When Reagan left, everybody thought the Reagan revolution was permanent. And no sooner had George H.W., his vice president, Bush, announced his candidacy. He said, I want a kinder and gentler nation. And people said, kinder and gentler than what? Ronald Reagan? That was the guy who picked <laughs> you for vice president. When Bill Clinton came out of office, uh, Al Gore said, I don't really want the guy campaigning with him. Probably cost him the election. Uh, when George H.W. left office, the first thing McCain did was run away from him. So that happens. But the better question is, Trump added some wrinkles to mostly a conservative message. 90% of Trump messages, you know, deregulation, lower taxes, energy production, more defense spending, uh, less, uh, more energy development, pipeline, the whole thing. That was pretty much strict constructionist judges, cultural issues, uh, clap down, clap, uh, clap down on, you know, campus uh, abolition of free speech, for example. But he added three or four wrinkles that were specifically designed to areas that the Republicans had not been effective. And that was those Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, North Carolina voters. And the way that the electoral college and the popular vote sink these days, Texas doesn't matter. California doesn't matter. New York doesn't matter. Illinois doesn't matter. They're already predetermined blue or red. It's about those 10 or 12 states and the Republicans just had not been able to to have a message that that brought those six to eight million former, I don't know what we call them, parole voters, Reagan Democrats, back into the process. And Trump did. So after he's gone, will they will Mar a Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz will they say, you know what, I'm going to go into Ohio, and I'm going to go into Michigan. And I'm going to talk to some steel workers. I'm going to talk to some farmers. I'm going to talk to average people. And I'm going to so energize them that they're going to get out and vote for me. I don't think that's going to happen because I saw it with Romney and I saw it with McCain. And I've seen that the last five of the last six elections, the Republicans haven't won 50. Um, they haven't won the popular vote and they haven't won 51 percent since George H.W. Bush did it 30 years ago. So there was something wrong there, and that's what Trump tried to address. He wanted to make a people's workers, populist, conservative, cultural party that said, you know, you got to have fair trade, not just free trade. You've got to have manufacturing, not just coding. You have to close the border, not just get cheap labor. And a lot of Republicans hated him for that. And maybe when he's gone... They won't get the message, and they'll go back, and, and they'll they'll lose nobly. It was also his personality. He basically said, you may not like me, and I'm an SOB, but I'm not going to lose nobly like Romney and McCain and rule out Reverend Wright or not attack Candy Crawley for hijacking the second debate. I'm going to fight, and I'm going to do tit for tat, and he did. And that was part of the attraction for certain base voters. They said, you know what? He's a pit bull. I'm going to cut the leash. I'm going to point him in the right direction. He's going to get, he's going to, that's payback for what the, the left has been doing. That was a persuasive message. I don't know if they have the person 
that ran against exactly. him say that, that that would would campaign like that. It takes a lot of thick, thick skin, takes a lot of energy. Yes. It takes true. He, it didn't it didn't affect Trump. Now, Victor, what I'm saying, let's just say your prediction and my predictions. Can we see a complete turn in this country, or do you think that at one point there'll be somebody that comes out? But do you think we're going to go really to the left after President Trump is no longer in office? Meaning eight years from now, another five, you know, five years from now. Well, it depends on a lot of things. Whether Trump's successful, if he were to close the border and make immigration legal, diverse from all over the world, meritocratic, so you'd have some skills, and uh, measured, say 500,000 rather than a million or two million, then the melting pot of you know, assimilation, integration, intermarriage would start to reassert itself. And then if your name was Giuliani or Pelosi, you can't tell what their politics are. Just so if your name is Lopez or Martinez, we have no idea how you're going to vote. That's how America works. But when you let in 20 million people illegally and they don't assimilate quickly and they don't have skills or education or money and no legality, then you get what we have now, ethnic identity politics. So that's why Trump is trying to close the border so that he does, they don't keep flipping red states into blue states like California, Nevada, exactly. and Mexico. Yeah. And that's that'll be a big if. We'll see how that works. And then the second thing is for a different, it's not a 90% white country, it's 70%. Right. It's still pretty overwhelmingly white. But can he tell African-Americans and Hispanic Americans that it was me who who got your record low on employment. It's me who doesn't like infanticide and radical abortion that devastates your community. It's me who is trying to close the border so your entry-level wages are, are, are competitive and that you're not undercut. It's I'm not attacking Catholics uh, in the way that Diane Feinstein or Camilla Harris have recently done. So if you can get a message where, say, 40%, of the Hispanic vote, maybe 20% of the African-American vote. It's not a lot. If he gets that, he's going to win. And the Republicans will win because the Democratic Party, for good or evil, have absolutely polarized the white working class in this country. And uh, they don't vote. They do not vote. They either don't vote or they'll vote conservative, but they will not vote for a left-wing person. And uh, they're starting to alienate all of the white voters. If you look at some of the statistics, it's quite scary. It's up to 62, 63, 64% of all white males are not voting Democratic. And they're trying to make that up with women. And it's about 52% of women are voting Republican who are white women. And so now they're pandering more and more to a non-white but we got to remember, it's still only 30% of the electorate. Yes. Wow. And they're very vulnerable that Trump can come in and poach minority voters. And then this isn't even talking about intermarriage and, you know, my family, your family, every family in America is now not of one race or ethnic background. They're all intermarried. And race, if they shut the border down, race will be less essential to a person's persona, I think. As time goes on, if if Trump's successful in controlling exactly. the border. Now, Victor, your book, is it really in a lot? You said you took this as a historical point of view, an unbiased way of refuting President Trump's presidency so far. In your opinion, 
Uh, do you feel he's a, a very good president from what we've seen so far, even though there's so many other people saying that's not the case? Well, like I said, I, I, I didn't want to meet Trump. I didn't interview him. I didn't do any inside interviews. I didn't go to Washington. I didn't hang out there. I'm just a historian that looks at the facts and the data and trends in the past. And so what I said is, how is the president evaluated? He's evaluated on, A, the economy. What does that mean? It means GDP, unemployment, energy production, inflation, interest rates, the stock market, uh, wages. They're all positive for Trump. So the next thing is foreign policy. Well, he's was getting out of the Iran deal good or bad? Was the Paris Accord necessary or unnecessary? Was it good to move the, the embassy to Jerusalem? Is it good to address the nuclear weapons at North Korea? I think pretty much he's restoring de- deterrence, upping the defense budget. So I can understand that there's room to debate, but I think most people will either say his foreign policy is okay or it's positive. It's getting better, especially under Pompeo. Then the third thing is, personality. How does he affect people when they turn on the TV? They like seeing him. Do they not like it? I think he's, that was a negative that his accent, his uh, ad hominem attacks, his brawling, it didn't appeal to too many people beyond his base of 40 people enough that he could get elected. But has that stayed the same diminished or or exacerbated. And I think that that's out. Uh, a lot of people like the idea that anything that doesn't kill Trump makes him stronger. A lot of people like his brashness. A lot of people don't. But that's a third element that I don't have the answer for yet. And as I said in the book, uh, I can talk to people in my own family and tell them just what I told you. And they will agree with me that the economy and the foreign policy is, is much better, but they won't vote for him. And that's, they don't like him. They don't like what he said. They'll say something like, well, he called Stormy Daniels horse face. Therefore, I'm not going to vote for him. Or they'll say um, he made fun of Carly Fiorina's looks. I mean, each one of those times he tweets something like that, he loses a a few voters. And and the aggregate, they can be decisive. But I think that's one of the three criteria that's up for, for debate. So, again, I think he's got a 52, 53, 55% chance of winning. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's the, that, that's the key component for sure in uh, so many ways. And we have to, uh, you know, continue to, to see what happens. So your concern, only major thing from your evaluation is looking at how he can bring the country together and become more not as polarizing. That's probably yes. that's probably the one area that you're very concerned. You wish that, you know, if you could, you know, mold a Republican candidate or a presidential candidate, one that is you talked about all those markers that you look for in success as a president, but you can't have that polarization or we could just could literally lose control and have policies that are out of control and crazy based on. Yeah. yeah. I think there has to be some issues that everybody agrees on. One is the deficit and the debt and Trump. I know there's going to be arguments about how to address it, but he's going to have to have it by, you know, sort of a Simpson Bowles commission or something and 
and address that. He's already talking about a 5% cut in discretionary spending, but that would be something that would be very hard to criticism on. Criticize him when we have a $22 trillion debt. A lot of people want infrastructure and they want a gas tax because, you know, I'm, I'm not for that, but they say, you know, gas is cheap, getting cheaper and cheaper as we're the world's largest producer of oil. So therefore, let's rebuild our infrastructure by having a five cent a gallon tax and still would make gas cheap. But those are things that he might want to explore so that they're not so controversial. But with all that being said, uh, Obama took the country very hard to the left in a way that uh, even Hillary Clinton would not have done had she been elected. And it's a very polarized country. And there were things that went on the last eight years that we don't really talk about. But, uh, and I mean that Obama, we, we forget it was take a gun to a knife fight and you didn't build that and punish your enemies and get in their face and Trevon's the kid that I never had. And all that stuff, uh, the media thought it was great, but it, it was sort of one little one little extra burden on the camel's back for the voters. And finally, people got sick of it. And then Obama in 2008 discovered, um, excuse me, 2016 discovered that the more that you didn't hear him and didn't see him, the more people liked the idea of Obama rather than the reality. So if you look at that last 2016 year, he just checked out, played golf, waved everybody, let the Democrats and Republicans in the primaries fight it out. And his his polls went from 43 to 52. And uh, But he did a lot of damage. He got, caused a lot of polarization. Um, we, don't, we don't talk about that at all. But, I mean, he did things that if Trump did, he'd be impeached right now. He, he went after the AP reporters. He surveilled James Rosen. He put, weaponized the IRS. He weaponized the EPA uh, in the last year in office. It's pretty clear that James Comey and Andrew McCabe and John Brennan and James Clapper were actively involved in seeding this Hillary opposition research dossier among federal agencies to leak to the press to affect the election. And, I, and uh, a lot of people didn't like all that. And that's where we, why we got Trump. And Trump's attitude is, you know what? The left is not the left of the old days. It doesn't do any good to compromise with them because they interpret magnanimity as weakness to be exploited and not to be reciprocated. And that's, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's his attitude that you play by the Marcus of Queensbury, Mitt Romney rules, John McCain will you lose because these guys are hardcore neo-socialists and they don't take prisoners. And a lot of people... Right. Agreed with it. Okay. Prediction. What are your predictions for, I guess, President Trump and his legacy? Well, I think he's got a good chance of being uh, what I said in the book was a tragic hero. He's sort of a shame. I grew up with Western, so I, oh, that's my frame of reference. And Greek tragedy, Antigone, Ajax, Shane, Magnificent Seven, The Searchers, Ethan Edwards, a guy that the community calls in with an unorthodox uh, methodology and unsavory background and says, you know what, we're at an impasse. Our institutions are not saving us, whether from the banditos, the sod, you know, whoever it is, the cattle barons, and we need you to, to help us, the gunslinger. 
And then he does. And as soon as he starts to be successful, people say, wow, I feel like things are going really great. But why in the world does he talk that way? Why is he, why is he so rude? Why is he so crass? When is he going to leave? And that, that's the essence of, in literature and history, the tragic hero. So I think that Trump will probably be very successful. And he already has been. And I think people will not give him commiserate credit, and he will leave office, whether in 2020, but more likely in 2024, not as a, uh, as a Reaganite, you know, Bush, elder Bush, senior statesman. People will be, right. you know, they, why did I vote for him? God, he was crude. I can't believe he's, I don't want him around at a funeral, that kind of stuff. But then they're going to privately think, thank God he came, because had we not, had he not come, we were looking at 16 years of Clinton-Obama socialism. That's sort of how I look at the whole thing. All right. Well, fantastic. Uh, Best place we can purchase your book and learn more about you. I tell you, it's kind of... I have not been following politics as much as you are, but I think I'm on the right track at looking at what trends are. But, uh, again, let's just hope that President Trump maybe through his second uh, term continues to have uh, those results that we like but kind of changes a little bit of his attitude the older he gets. Let's hope that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, Mar- Vic- Victor, best place we can p- purchase your book and learn more about you is Amazon uh, all over the place, right? Amazon, Borders, I mean, uh, Barnes & Nobles, Walmart, Target. I have a website, victorhanson.com. They can learn. Well, you're fabulous. We'll talk We'll talk another time, hopefully some education. I'd love to delve into what you think of our education system and stuff like that and talk well, thank about thank you. Uh, but I appreciate you coming on. Okay, thank you. All right, take care. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Lyrically Lime segment, and I'm first excited to welcome to the program my co-host and host of Lyrically Lime, Peyton Leonard. Peyton, how are you? And uh, we have had an interesting bunch of different guests you've interviewed on Lyrically Lime, haven't we? Yeah, definitely, for sure. And I'm, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Hey, I can't complain except I sure Facebook isn't happy right today and uh or yeah. or is one of my syndicators I couldn't even do it so we're kind of just recording tonight. But go ahead and introduce our guest. Awesome. She is the amazing Christina Proenza Coles. Uh, she holds a dual doctorate in sociology and history from the New School for Social Research. She has been a lifelong student of American culture and history in Miami, New York, Havana, and Charlottesville, as well as an assistant professor of the Atlantic World African Diaspora at Virginia State University. Christina, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me tonight. You're welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yes, it's uh, it's gonna. I'm I'm a historian myself. I have an undergrad in history, so I'm looking forward to uh, l- learning more and more about what you've discovered. But uh, Peyton has her first question first. Awesome. Yeah. So tell us why you decided to write the book. Well, I, as you mentioned, I was a history professor at Virginia State University, um, and from about 2004 to 2011, and I had a core group of courses that I taught every semester. World history to 1500, um, mm-hmm. U.S. history to 1865, Latin American history, and then something we called um, Atlantic world history, which is what I was hired for, which is a way to look at um, 
the rise of the new world by studying how Europe and Africa and the Americas as a whole kind of kind of come together in that story. So as I prepared for these classes every semester, I'd read up on new books and I'd order books and I'd read papers. I kept coming across examples of um, men and women of African descent who did really incredible things like like fought in revolutionary wars or, or, or acted mm. as spies in wars or, or, or established schools, underground schools sometimes, or, or even things that you wouldn't think, you know, that you would think of with the history of slavery that people weren't allowed to do, like petition legislatures or start businesses. And these really remarkable stories just started to accumulate. And they just radically changed how I understood the rise of freedom and democracy in the Americas. So I got what I wanted to do is bring together in one place all of these threads of all of these stories. So then what you end up with is this huge, huge story in American founders that starts with Columbus's ships in 1492 and goes up to 1950 and covers all of the Americas. So the more I looked for these, you know, these stories, the more I found them. And it became an enormous undertaking that took me about um, 10 years to, to sort of gather these threads. That's wow, so, that's amazing. It is definitely amazing. And so you're surprised. So even though you have a background in history, when you started discovering these things, you'll, you said to yourself, why aren't they out there, right? You're, I'm sure, so, so, so surprised to know that certain stories happen and things happen in history that just really weren't uh, publicized. It was, there were so many stories, and I would have dinner with friends, and I'd, I'd, I'd say, gosh, you can't hear about this guy that I, I stumbled on today. And people would say, gosh, that, that should be a TV show. That, that should be a movie. And I thought, it should be. And so I actually, that's, I was actually one of the genesis, like, beginnings of the project. I sat down for a friend who was in the television business, and he was like, right, you know, write it all up. And so it, it really would be interesting to sort of shift. I mean, these stories, like I said, I mean, I spent some time in the archives, a little bit in Virginia, a little bit in Cuba, but this history has been all around us this entire time. So there's books that are coming out now that are fantastic that you can read and do these deep dives about these individuals that I've put together in American Founders. But there's also been historians writing about, for example, the role of African-Americans in the American Civil War. It's Extraordinary, or, or, the, or the American Revolution is another one, and so you mm-hmm. know that's that's it's we, it's been documented that we, there's about five thousand um, patriot soldiers who are of African descent, countless more who were not officially enlisted, and then there was tens of thousands of people who decided to side with the British for for reasons of trying to escape slavery, and this was documented for centuries. In fact, the first one of the first books that were written about the American uh, the Black Patriots, the American Revolution was by a black Bostonian named William C. Nell, who was writing about this in the 1850s in Boston. So this information has been here, um, but it's nice to kind of get it all in place and sort of turn the lights up on the history. Yeah, for sure. Why do we not learn this history in school? Like, I, I've never heard some of the things that, uh, that you're talking about here, you, I rarely heard um, in school, as far as I can remember. So I'm wondering, like, why? Why do you think that is? <laughs> Where should these stories go? I mean, I think in some ways, you know, we, we certainly, and, in, and I used to, before I taught at the university, I taught, I taught high school as well. And my mom was a, a career educator, high school teacher. And I think that, um, in terms of history, you know, we taught the textbooks that, that were given to us. And so I think, mm-hmm. I think that in some cases, um, 
the the in this history is kind of obscure. I mean, there's some people that know that it that it was that in the in the process of doing the research, I, there was more and more that I could find out about them because the documentation was so obscure. I think there's mm. cases of you know if you start celebrating, if you start, so I'll give you one quick example. So, um, as I said, there was 5,000 documented, um, patriots who fought for, for, in the American revolution. And many of those, I mean, there, and there was slavery in the South and the North at this time, slavery is going to gradually um, be abolished in the North, often as the result of actions taken by African-Americans in the wake of the American revolution. But you have people mm. in the North who are both enslaved and free who are fighting as patriots, but you also have people in the South, both enslaved and free people of color who are fighting with the patriots as well. And after, and there's lots of documentation you can find of, of admirals, the Navy who are talking about the incredible bravery of black sailors during these, these difficult battles. And um, you see in Virginia, for example, Virginia passes manumission acts on purpose in 1782 that say, that liberate, that say you have to free enslaved veterans because they're having a problem with people who weren't freeing enslaved veterans. Um, so, and, and in the act, they say we want to free these individuals because of their contribution to American liberty and independence. And this is actually an act that you can see online. It's part of the University of Virginia digital library. And so in other words, the information yes. is there. We just kind of haven't put it together in a narrative. And I will say, I suspect, I mean, first of all, as you know, as historian, you know, history is incredibly complicated. It's it's very mm. complex. And so it's hard to tell stories that are, and you can probably tell with me tonight, that are just very direct and to the point, and you need to get the complexity out there and get to your main point. So I think that's one problem we have with the history. I also think there's a very deliberate way of writing history, certainly, I would say, in the wake of the Civil War and Reconstruction, where we're trying to define who we are as a nation, where you know, I used to sh- share with my students history books from the 1950s, and they're very, you know, they, they would read it sort of as really um, awkward, I think, to, to the 21st century person. I mean, they were very, they were sending a very deliberate message about, you know, who who were the, were the you know, main protagonists in history and who were, who were not really part of it. So I think some, I think some of it was deliberate to sort of, mm. for maybe political reasons. And I think also then what happens though, some of it is inadvertence because then, like I said, the history books, you're getting their passed down, the stories you're getting passed down. And so, you know, there's a really, you know, there could be very, you know, well-intentioned history teachers who just aren't, aren't getting access to the information. So I don't, I think it's, all of these things kind of coming together that have kept us from this knowledge. Yeah. It definitely seems like it, Christina, and it's something that, uh, like I said, you and other people need to make a movement to say, you know, the thing I find fascinating just by, you know, just reading what you're doing with your book and stuff is the startup that African-Americans were here before, before the discovery of the new world and were involved and were great contributors before this happened. That's something that's the biggest surprise, right? That they battled to not be enslaved instead of the story that we see in the North and South and different of the story of Africans when they came to the Americas later on. Right, Christina, that's something that's just, just really blows people away. Right. I agree. I mean, as someone who, as I said, as I said, you know, as a historian, the way I grew up learning history was, you know, African Americans arrived in the American South in the 1800s as plantation slaves and worked on cotton plantations. And Lincoln, you know, made the Emancipation Proclamation. And then the next time you see African Americans on the political stage is during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s. And that's that's kind of the way I got my history. And I was 
I was blown away to realize that these are these are facts. These are figures that are are you know well documented. So by 1820, four times as many Africans had come to the New World as Europeans, and this was because of the slave trade. There's no doubt about it. But just the the numbers themselves are stunning. So to put this another way, by 1820, 2.6 million Europeans had arrived in the Americas, compared to 8.8 million. Africans. So that's that was a known, you know, that's a known demographic statistic because of the slave trade. But then if, if you think about it and if you start to think, well, you know, these people of African descent, even if they're enslaved, even if their rights weren't recognized by their governments, they're they're still Americans. So then you get to the point where you have to say, wow, that means that before 1820, before the before the you know the first quarter of the 19th century, the vast majority of Americans arrived in the new world as slaves. And then for me, everything sort of follows from that. Like once you recognize that people who were enslaved or, or denied rights were actually actors who are, who were participating in history in the most you know, day-to-day ways and these watershed events like revolutionary wars um, and revolts and all kinds of different ways that are pushing this agenda of freedom forward. It was, you know, it started to make more sense that of course, you know, that demographic, of course, the people of African descent played major roles. Um, in American history. And again, the majority of people were enslaved, um, but it did not prevent them from participating in history. And I think there's a lot more autonomy for enslaved people, certainly, I would say, in parts of Latin America um, and the Caribbean than, than you would might associate or think about with slavery in, in, let's say, the South in the 19th century. But even, you know, the stories of, of the beginnings of slavery in Virginia or or in, you know, in, in the North, like it's very, inco- in the beginning of the story, like it was very fluid, these lines between indentured servants and enslaved people. And in fact, in the very beginning of Virginia and Maryland, in the very, you know, earliest colonies, the labor needs were met by white indentured servants. So the vast majority of, of quote unquote, unfree people in, in, the, in North America were originally these European servants working alongside a smaller number of people from Africa um, and you can sort of see the, the legislature in Virginia piecemeal trying to create these like legislations. What do we do? Because people, white and black servants are, are running away together. They're, they're having children together. And so you can start to see the legislation start to create these racialized laws and these laws about um, about permanent, you know, inheritable servitude um, as opposed to an indentured servitude, obviously, ends up kind of fading away by the 1800s. But just wow. to see these stories are so enmeshed in and just almost everything from day to day. I mean just to give you one one quick little example, um from more modern history, I got I love I love the Smithsonian and I'm a member and I get their email blasts. So um they were they sent me an email about a book that they were advertising called um Smithsonian Treasures of American History. And it has, you know, and it says it's capturing the American story. It's a book of 150 amazing items. And it's going through, like it says, it's, it's, it's the best of the best um, of American history. And the things they're highlighting are things like uh, Lewis and Clark's compass or Thomas Edison's light bulb or um, the Lone Ranger's mask. And I realize, you know, there's an African-American part of all of those stories that is hmm. sort of not visible in, in, the, in the advertising for the book. And by the way, Smithsonian does wonderful things, I think, with African-American history. But I just feel like the way that we're in the habit of thinking, we don't think about that on Lewis and Clark's expedition after the Louisiana Purchase, that 
that one of the members of the expedition was technically a, a person who was enslaved by Clark. He had been inherited, Clark had inherited him from his father. The man's name was Yor. He participated in the mission in every way that every other member did in terms of labor and actually diplomacy because he knew some Native American languages. Um, and the only way that he wasn't, you know, sort of like the other members it was he never got paid but he got he had the island named after him he was he was a part of the mission or or for example thomas edison's light bulb um he had a partner named lewis latimer who was african-american who developed long-lasting carbon filaments and so thomas mm. edison tapped latimer in new york he was he was working for an electric company in new york and this is the beginning of incandescent lighting this is the end of the 1800s and um Lewis Latimer becomes a really important part of Thomas Edison's team, not just in the laboratory, by the way, developing incandescent filament, but also as a lawyer for Edison, who I think was famously uh, known for suing people for patent infringement, was one of his main his main moves for all of his different inventions. And Latimer <laughs> um, ended up learning uh, German and French in order to help um, defend some of these patent cases that were that could be with international companies. So I mean, these stories are so. And, and just to back up, just one more step. So. Lewis Latimer's parents were fugitive slaves from Virginia, which I just think I just find fascinating. So, so Latimer had been born in Boston as a free person. He participated in the Civil War as a very young man, as did many, many, many African-Americans uh, fought in the Civil War for the Union. But so his parents had escaped from slavery in Virginia in, in I think it was about the 1830s. And his the, the George Latimer, the father, was very light-skinned because he, his dad was his brother's owner, if that makes sense. So he's not the son of his owner. He's the, he's the nephew of his owner. So he, he passed for white in this case on his escape. And he, he brings, he brought along with him his common law wife, Rebecca, who was pregnant at the time, and she pretended to be his slave. And they make it to Boston. And this is extremely common. This, I mean, the people were, the Underground Railroad was, you know, extremely active and people were constantly flooding from, you know, liberating themselves to, to Northern, Northern um, cities. And so has often happened as well. Masters in the South would dispatch agents to recover people who had escaped. And so George and Rebecca were recognized in Boston in the 1830s by a slave catcher, which who was going to bring suit, bring trial, which was a really common thing to happen. But George Latimer was aware of all these abolitionist networks and he capitalized on them. He got a petition signed with 65,000 signatures. So um, he had a lot of political muscle behind him, and Massachusetts actually passes a law called the Latimer Law to protect the rights of fugitive slaves to be able to speak out for themselves in courts of law, to not have to be forced to return with slave catchers. So these stories are like, for me, there was going down a rabbit hole after rabbit hole of, of not only, you know, is it one individual, it's whole families of people who did remarkable things for, for you know, the rise of democracy, but also for the advance of technology, for developing industries, for developing schools. I mean, it really is, it's it's literally overwhelming. And I say in the beginning of the book, it's overwhelming. <laughs> and, and, and let it overwhelm you. You know, there's not a quiz at the end. Um, it's I, For me, it would be a hard book to read to straight, you know, start to finish in a couple of hours. You, it's a book that you pick up and put down again, because if there is, you know, these are not exceptions. These, these people of African descent who helped to shape democracy and fought for our, you know, fought for universal citizenship and for rights and helped to develop our, our country and the Americas at large. These are not exceptions. They are they are they are literally the rule. I mean, these are the founders. The way that I have encountered it in this book. That's awesome. It is definitely, and it's uh, something, Peyton, that you know. It people need to get and read and understand because I'm learning so mm -hmm. much tonight, aren't aren't you, Peyton? 
Yeah, for sure. Like I, I had no idea. So that's, it's a real eye opener, but it's really cool. One thing I want, I mean, I have a problem. I'll just talk and talk and talk and talk. So feel free to interject. But one thing I want to point out that that I kind of referenced, you know, lightly um, with the story of the Latimers is that um, not only is this history shared for me, this is a history not of African Americans. This is a history of all Americans because it 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 affected the history of of everyone who lives in America today. Even the most recent immigrant, we all live in a world that was shaped by these American founders. Um, you know, very figuratively, but also, you know, literally these are our ancestors in the sense that there was so much mixed race stuff happening. And I have an Instagram feed, which is completely down right now, of course, too. <laughs> um, it's at, at Proenza Coles, where I take the, I take, I have about 200 images or portraits of individuals because I can't go, you know, I can only go so far back, but there are, there actually are some very old portraits. Just really quickly, the very first portrait ever made, the first signed and dated portrait in the America is from 1599. It was painted by an Ecuadorian native artist. And it's a beautiful portrait of what's called three gentlemen from Esmeraldas. And there's three maroon fugitive slaves who became the leaders of a colony in Ecuador. Mm. And they are, it's a stunningly beautiful portrait because these gentlemen, they are wearing African garb, Native American garb, and European collars. And the combination is really kind of, it's the new world story right there for you. So there there are some actually very old portraits, um, a few in the Instagram feed. But um, in addition to that, some some of the more modern portraits, let's say from the um, 19th century, people are really of different complexions. And it really tells you the story of how literally, you know, we, we share the same ancestry that it's very unique, mm-hmm. you know, and cause in, 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 in North America, at least, you know, mixed race kids were considered, you know, people of color. So if their moms were enslaved, they were continue to be held in slavery. So then you get a really weird situation where you have a lot of American slave owners who own people with a lot of European ancestry and often their own kin, um, which is a super, you know, kind of strange conundrum for 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 anyone to be in. But that is, you know, our our history is is shared literally and figuratively. And and for me, the story is meant to be one that's inclusive. For me, the story is, you know, I'm not trying to replace one narrative with another. I'm trying to make mm-hmm. it's an invitation for us to to think more broadly about our American history and our and our and our identity in a way that to me feels a little bit more more complete. Wow, I, for sure, okay. for sure. And uh, so I'm going to jump with the, the history question. What were, were you most surprised about, Christina? I mean, honestly, it was that. It was once I started to go down the rabbit hole of mixed race people, when I was in graduate school, they used, and I would study, I was studying the history of slavery. And it's very interesting because the history of slavery in Latin America versus British America is very, very interesting. And, and that those were some, for me, like fundamental differences. Um, that got me thinking about these questions. And so one, so for example, one of the big differences between Latin American slavery and, and um, North and English slavery was in Latin America, first of all, the Spaniards were here, you know, centuries before, before the English. So, you know, exploring their exploratory missions and that there are people of African descent on every one of those missions. There's black conquistadors, some people held in bondage, people who were, were gifted, um, tracts of land for their service to the crown. I mean, anything that could have happened did happen in the colonial period. But as you guys know, slavery, you know, gains steam and currency and becomes this incredibly important part of the economic rise of the Americas. But in Latin America, they brought with them older slave codes, slave codes codes that would all the way back to ancient Rome. Because, you know, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, 
you know, huge parts of the population were enslaved. And it had nothing to do with race. It just, you know, th throughout most of human history, slavery was considered completely normal. I and mean, throughout most of human history, hierarchy was completely normal, no matter what civilization. You know, you had you had a religious or political, you know, head of of every, everybody who was, you know, uh, ruled by divine right or, you know, uh, inherited that right. And so everybody had, had kind of a place. And so slavery was considered normal. Slaves were prisoners of war. Slaves were, were could be foreigners. Slaves, you know, um, you know, performed service and tribute in these, in these older civilizations. But in the new world, you get this whole new kind of slavery because it becomes about mass mass production, really, and mass consumption of sugar, which is a whole other story, because then you get people in England who are able to purchase, you know, have, have, they have enough income to be able to purchase, um, you know, hot tea with sugar as they're being put into factories and can't grow their own food. There's this whole interesting network of a relationship between the rise of sugar in the new world and the old world that it actually involves the exploitation of workers on, on, on both sides of the pond. But in Latin America, um, in the mainland Spanish colonies, it's very Catholic and all, so they have these ancient slave codes that, that have that, that consider rights for, for enslaved people. And also there's um, the, the Catholic church and the, and the Spanish crown is overseeing these slave laws. So enslaved people in Latin America, they had some basic rights. I mean, they could marry in the church. They had to marry in the church. They had to be baptized. Um, you shouldn't, you couldn't separate prepubescent kids from families. They had all these special, they, they would have statutes that, that said that um, codes that said that, um, Slaves who had abusive masters could take their masters in front of an authority. There were codes that said that slaves could set their own purchase price with an authority so they could work towards purchasing their own freedom. Um, wow. Now, did that mean that people did that all the time and that slavery was delightful in Latin America? It doesn't. It, was, it, was a, it could be a br brutal institution. Certainly, it was sugar plantation. That's a whole other story and level of, of kind of brutality and mass production. But in smaller scale economies in Latin America, it, it, it really, it's, it's, you know, slave masters could, could step over any of those of those, you know, pieces of legislation or those customs, and certainly on very isolated plantations, they're doing whatever they want. But it just speaks to how Spanish authorities thought about the, the eligibility of slaves for rights. Um, you know, there's, there's there's legislation that encouraged, you know, in, in Cuba very early on, it said to military people, look, if you have if you have a child with an enslaved woman, you should free her. And you should, you should, you know, give that child your name. So that sets off a whole other way of rights because so that means those mixed race kids have rights. Um, and also, like as I was saying before, with, with hierarchy, you know, the Catholic Church is very hierarchical. So there's another argument to be made that, you know, if you have hierarchy, if you have a class system instead of, uh, you know, talking about a, a egalitarian system all the time, if you have a class system, you don't need to have this, you don't need to have race doing the same kind of work. Um, if everyone knows their place, so to speak, in Latin America. So there's this idea that in Latin America, slavery was possibly more benign uh, and that mixed race kids had, had sort of a, a social mobility aspect that you don't see in North America. But what they told me in graduate school was we didn't have as much racial, racial mixing here in North America, here in Virginia, Maryland. And I, I, I find that really hard to believe. And then when I would find... Um, you know, uh, notices for runaway slaves saying the person was very fair complected, the person looks almost white. Um, and, and there are these huge databases of, of fugitive slave notices. And so many of them talk about people looking very light skinned. It occurred to me, well, they must have some sort of European ancestry. Exactly. So that really bowled me over. Yeah. And so, and all these stories, as I collect these stories, and I'll go, and, and the book, there's more detail than I say, and I'll, but I'll say, you know, this person's mom was so and so, this person's dad was so and so. Right, and if right. you start to count how many times, that one of the parents, you know, was not of African descent. It's really, to me, it was it was it was extraordinary how incredibly mixed race um, American mm -hmm. 
you know, demography, like how mixed race the family trees really are, and, and Native, Amer- Native American descent as well. I mean, that was another, um, you know, constant thread. So that these these histories are sort of, wo- our genealogies are woven together, but is what I'm trying to say. Our genealogy is connected, which I, it, that really blew me away the most when I was doing this research. Peyton, awesome. she's given us a lot of information, and that's where people say, well, okay, I want to catch up understand this more is go purchase the book. But Peyton, you have another question for Christina that you kind of gotten that you've thought about throughout this time as she's been talking and really sharing a lot of great information. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I want to know what, what about history makes you so passionate about it? Like what what was the first thing about history? Like when you first learned about the history of, of uh, African-Americans and stuff like that, like what was the, the one thing that really, I guess, took you over the edge and made you kind of just fall in love with this? Well, for me, it was, I grew up, I grew up in Miami, Florida Mm -hmm. in the seventies and the eighties. And Miami is a really incredible kaleidoscope i like to call it of it's got latin american people it's got people from the caribbean it's got people from the american south it's you know it's it's such an interesting mix of people and as a little kid growing up there um i just was fascinated and and i was always told you know we live in democracy and everyone's equal and and you know all of the messages from school and home or you know dr martin luther king has a dream and we're gonna we're gonna get there and i was looking around though in miami and thinking i don't know where we are like it's really Mm. it's really complicated and it's really interesting also because like it's not just black and white you know and and people you know people who are coming from the caribbean who were identifying as white they had to learn the codes of what it meant to be white in south florida and people who are coming from the caribbean who were of african descent they had to learn the codes of what it means to be black in miami florida because it's different you know if you live in a majority culture in the caribbean that doesn't have jim crow you know you have to be taught that kind of color line and then it occurred to me i was like wow if people of african descent are taught that color line people of european descent are being taught that color line as well and i was like whoa (laughs) like that's really Mm. intense and so i got really interested in how we made that color line and how and we do it differently and we do it throughout history they do it differently in cuba they do it differently and you know in virginia they do it differently you know in all different places but so then i became fascinated with how do we make these lines so how do we so you know as, as we're talking about right now these histories are where people were having children with each other people were were you know collaborating and people were you know people were were you know there's also you know this violent history of slavery that's that's part of all this that we've got to sort of justify in a democracy and a christian culture you know how, how do we explain it how do we explain this and rationalize it so it's a very complicated history and so the question becomes like how do we cleave apart all this connectedness if we're so interconnected right if we're so interrelated and if we're so you know have all of all, all of this um shared history how do we push it apart and we did that through this really violent practice of the color line. And so that was something that I was interested in. And it's interesting to me that it's not it's not set in stone. You know, these things, these things, you know, we tend to read history backwards of, oh, it always you know, it's going to turn out like this. But it wasn't. That's what's so exciting to me is to, to get to hear these stories and these histories. Like Florida, just, I mean, really quickly, you know, the state of Florida, where I'm from, was held by the Spanish for a super long time. And really became a, a super large maroon community, or rather a place for fugitive slaves from South Carolina 
North Carolina and Georgia to, to if they could make it there, they could, they were essentially free. And so starting in the 1600s, you have massive movements and, and slave revolts and, 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 and then also Creek Indians being pushed to Florida. So you have people of African descent who are establishing independent maroon communities. You have people of African descent joining Seminole Creek communities and forming what they call black Seminole communities. You have people of African descent joining the Spanish and joining their militia and adjacent to St. Augustine, where, by the way, the first black child was registered, you know, their baptism.